Want to be a CEO? It's a tough mountain to climb. I'm finding out how to get there and what to do once you make it to the top. I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Today we're joined by a guest who held one of the highest profile CEO roles in Australia during one of the most challenging times, not just for that business, but for the sector in general. It's going to be a fascinating conversation, one I'm really looking forward to. But first, of course, I'm joined by Philip Levinson, CEO, CEO mentor, and the author of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Lev, g'day. G'day, Michael. Now, there are very few jobs in Australian business that are more high profile than being the CEO of one of the big four banks. Now, imagine trying to do that during the Royal Commission into Banking, examining sector-wide issues with intense media scrutiny. Brian Hartz's 30-year career in banking saw him hold senior roles at institutions including ANZ and the Royal Bank of Scotland, but he's best known as CEO of Westpac for almost five years from 2015 to the end of 2019. Brian steered the bank through the Royal Commission and was at the helm when Austrac charged Westpac with 23 million breaches of anti-money laundering laws, largely relating to the bank's failure to report international transfers. Amid mounting political pressure, Brian Hartzer resigned his position in 2019. He's now turned his decades of experience into a book, The Leadership Star. Brian, welcome to Three Peaks Leadership. Thanks for having me. Can I ask you to, to cast your mind back to 2015, to your very first day on the job as CEO of Westpac? What did you do? What was the very first thing that you did on that day? The first thing I did was walk to work. I was actually in Melbourne. We had an office in Melbourne, and symbolically, I wanted to make the point that we were indeed a national organization, not just a Sydney-based organization. So I made a point of starting work there. And uh, the first couple of days were all very scripted out. We'd had a a very well-planned out transition. So it was a combination of a couple of organizational announcements, the launch of some new technology, which was called Yammer, which was an internal, sort of an internal Facebook to help build communications internally. And then it was really about just getting around and introducing myself to parts of the organization that I didn't know, as well as getting out and and meeting with a few of our big customers. And so how important then was that, the orderly transition between leaders? Because otherwise, I suspect it would be very easy to be overwhelmed in those first few days by a sudden influx of everybody wanting something. Well, I think it was important. And I was very fortunate in that way that Westpac had had a pretty cohesive series of CEOs over the last couple of decades. And um, I had worked for my predecessor for a couple of years. We'd had lots of time to plan the transition. And and I think it was important. Westpac, we saw ourselves as a real institution in the country. The It's the oldest company in Australia, plus the, by definition, the first bank. And so it was really important to recognize that this was a tra- transferring of, of the baton, a transfer of stewardship, but it wasn't um, suggesting that we were going to be fundamentally changing things. Um, you know, we, we wanted to send a message of, of continuity to our people and to our customers. So, Brian, your um, first days are pretty scripted, but uh, we've talked about this in, in the past on the podcast. There seems to be some universal agreement that the first 100 days set the tone for a CEO's appointment. Does, does that 
resonate with you? It does. It's sort of, it's interesting, isn't it? It's become a, a standard thing that everybody looks for. And certainly we did manage it in that way. Although I guess because I was an insider, um, it wasn't like I was coming in fresh to the organization. I already knew most of the people. We already had our strategy reasonably well-defined. So it was more in my case about maintaining momentum and making sure that our customers, that our external stakeholders, and that our staff continued to be motivated and focused. There were some things, I, I was very aware of the need for some symbolic acts in order to signal that there were, that people needed to pay attention, that we were going to be lifting our aspirations. And for me, that was a couple of organizational changes that I announced, um, I believe on the first day. Um, in particular, I decided to elevate the role of the chief information officer to being a direct report of mine, whereas previously the CIO had had sat within a, a broader COO role. Now, the reason in my case that was important was because I believed and had been advocating for the fact that technology was going to play a really important role in, in the future of the company. And so symbolically making that change on my first day was a way to send a message internally and to the market that we were going to be taking technology very seriously indeed. So uh, I guess there was that element of of symbolism about it. And, and I think clearly people do want to see delivery in an early period of time to form their impressions on a new CIO, CEO. So we we certainly did organize the first couple of months in that way to make sure that at the end of the first couple of months, um, which for us was probably the the first financial result that we announced in May. I started in February, so I guess we we were working very clearly toward that first um, May result to try to set the tone. So, talking if if we may, talking about tone, you know, again, we've been talking about the fact that culture is set at the top and dissipates into the teams. You came from, you were internal. So that's a very interesting view of the culture, which you already knew. And how did you elect to change that, bearing in mind that you were on the part of the senior leadership team uh, in the lead up to your CEO role? As you say, you knew the people that you needed or the majority of the people that you needed to know you were imbued in the culture, but you felt that you needed to make some symbolic changes. How do you do that without upsetting what has been to, to that point, probably a pretty effective and effectively managed organization? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And that was certainly something that I spent a lot of time thinking about how to walk that line. Because on the one hand, I think internal people tend in some respects, to have a better understanding about what needs to be changed. I think from the outside, people assume that internal people can't see what's wrong, but often the internal people, have a, have a, have, having lived in the organization, understand what the, what the frustrations are and what needs to change. Yep. Um, but in my case, my predecessor, quite rightly, was well-respected by many people, both internally and externally. And so um, it was very important to me that we continued to treat her and her legacy with respect. So it was a, a line I needed to walk. The, the way that I generally tried to deal with that was to talk about the fact that we make decisions based on the circumstances at the time. 
that are, are the right thing for the time. And that we were clearly going through as an industry, a period of time where we were facing new competition, we were facing changes in customer behavior, we were facing new technologies coming to bear, and and therefore we needed to adapt to that changing environment. And so the changes we were making were not about saying what we've been doing is wrong. They were about saying that our context has changed and and therefore we are adapting to that change. And I think that that sort of approach meant that people could reconcile in their mind, yes, we might have liked certain things that we were doing, but um, we understand why we need to change now. I think it's probably worth at this point um, mentioning the leadership star and trying to get a bit of an understanding of, of, of what that is, because it probably does provide a fair bit of context to some of these decisions that you were making, because this is a a principle of leadership that you'd been working on for a very long time. And it's not just something that you've come up with post uh, Westpac. This was something that you developed and implemented while you were there. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. So I don't have an MBA and I had to learn leadership of big organizations on the fly, really. So I was put in charge of a business of about a thousand people 20 years ago without having had much direct experience of managing people. And I started paying attention to people who were doing it really well and particularly became interested in this idea of staff engagement and that if you got people emotionally committed and engaged in what you were doing, that they were likely to perform better and you'd attract better people to work for you and and so forth. So over the years, I started to pick up tips from watching other people and I started to apply them, started to get very good results and Eventually, one of my colleagues in another part of the bank asked me to come and talk to his team about what it was we were doing in my business. And so I sat down and made a big, long list of all the things I'd learned. And being a good ex-management consultant, you can't have a list of more than five to seven things. And so I found I was able to group them up, and I found that they tended to all be describable by a word that started with C. And I'm a big fan of the fact that having read lots of books where you forget what you've read as soon as you finish it, I needed to make the messages memorable. And so I thought, well, there's five things, five C's, five points on a star. I'll call it the leadership star. The idea was just to create a visual reference that then hopefully people could go, oh, yes, leadership star, five points, five C's. What are the C's? Okay, now I can remember that. And I found that for myself really helpful to just be able to carry it around in my head so that I could check myself when things were going not so well, or if I was trying to think about what I needed to do, it, it was easy for me to remember it without having to go and look it up. Let's break down what those, uh, the five points of the leadership star are. I know that uh, care, context, clarity, clear the way and celebrate. Uh, I, I can understand care. Obviously, the, the importance of caring for your employees is, is pretty clear and to be seen to be doing it as, as well, not just saying that you are. Uh, but, but can you explain context to me? Why, why is context so useful for building engagement with your team? 
Sure. Well, just before we leave care, though, I, uh, all of these things sound pretty obvious on the surface. There are subtleties with all of them. And the key thing around care is recognizing people as individual human beings and taking actions that demonstrate that you believe that as opposed to most people. And I say that because most people say, well, of course I care about my employees, but it's, do they feel that you care about them as an individual is the subtlety context is about giving people the why. And I suppose in our context, we, uh, we're fortunate to live in a country that is affluent where people there's relatively low unemployment. People have choices about how they spend their time. And so what you're trying to do is help people see what the purpose of the organization is beyond just in a commercial setting, making money. Um, and, and then helping people see two things. One is how does their role contribute to that broader purpose? And secondly, why is that role or why is that purpose something that resonates with their own personal values? In other words, why, why should I feel good about spending my time doing this? And how do I see that the things I do all day are contributing to a bigger picture? And I think the, the reason that I draw that one out, the subtlety here, is that many leaders assume that that's true. Because if you've risen to a high level in an organization, you inevitably understand that company, why it's there, what its context is. And, and leaders tend to assume that everybody else in the organization sees what they do. But if you're a frontline worker and you've come in and you don't have a background in the industry and you have just been told, okay, here's your job and you need to do this on Monday and this on Monday afternoon and so forth, you don't necessarily have that link between the work you're doing and, and how that is fulfilling some broader purpose. I understand that. And I, and I get as well then the, the point that you made about care, but how do you do that at scale? Mm. How do you do that then when you're leading Westpac and, and with around what 40,000 odd employees around, around the country, around the world? How do you make that personal connection or make that make the work personally meaningful to each and every one of those people that that are essentially working under you for the organization well i it, it's a challenge of course i think it's gotten easier in a modern communication environment where you can use technology you can use video you can use email you can use internal social networking you can use all these things to be constantly reaching out to people and, and putting a face to a name and, and reinforcing your messages. But at a content level, I think it comes down to storytelling and symbolic acts. So we used to work really hard on thinking about what are the things, what are the steps we can take that people will see as being something concrete and we'll tell each other about and we'll talk about internally as evidence of what the organization actually believes. So you have to go beyond just saying this is what we think and this is what we're doing. You need to take steps that that bring that to life for people. So let me try and think of an example. Well, there's an example from, as it happens, it was my last day there, but it, it was a manifestation of the kind of thing that I used to do. So on my last day at Westpac, I made a point of going down to the lobby of the building and thanking people as they came through and as they were leaving uh, for the work that they were doing and for the support that they'd given me and so on. And I knew that that was a, a slightly unusual thing to do, particularly in the context of me leaving. And, and sure enough, 
the message went all over the building that I was down in the lobby and some people came down and so on. Now, in reality, I was only down there for probably half an hour, Hmm. but it had a huge ripple effect through the organization because it was my way of genuinely showing that I did actually care about these people and that I was genuinely very grateful for, for all the work that they did. And it's interesting, even to this day, people will sometimes talk to me about how, oh, I, I remember you were in the lobby that day. Um, so that was something I used to do personally. I used to look for those interventions. Maybe it was showing up somewhere at an unexpected time in a surprising way and, and encouraging the people who were the leaders in my team to likewise look for things that they could do that that brought this to life. Now, it had to be genuine. It wasn't just about you know, a PR exercise, hmm. but it, but it, it was about thinking about how can I have a ripple effect? Where, where are the points of leverage that I can intervene that will then cascade through the organization and, and reinforce this? And storytelling is a big part of that, uh, bringing it to life by connecting your own personal experience with something that you're talking about, telling the story of an actual customer that had been uh, or a staff member who'd done something fantastic for a customer that that you could use as a way to highlight the sort of expectations that you had. It, it was that sort of thing. So it's really about kind of finding those points of maximum impact, really, and, and prioritizing yeah. those. Yeah, yeah. And, and recognizing that you have to be, it's a cliche, but you have to communicate things over and over and over again in lots of different ways. You can't just do a PowerPoint presentation and expect everybody to be bought in. You've got to find ways to do it. And we used to, we used to be very f- formal about planning our communication strategy over the subsequent few months. So I used to meet once a quarter with my communications team, and we would think about what are the different ways that we can bring things to life, not always using the same same old town hall format or visits to people. Or We, we were always looking for new things. I would, I would do things like video conference into a branch team meeting to talk to them about what we were up to and get their feedback on, on things that they were seeing. And then you, you do that with a branch in rural WA. And the next thing you know, every branch in WA knows that, that I've been talking to that team and that's something for them to talk about. And so it's, it's looking for those creative, slightly surprising things that you could do that brought to life, whatever the, the key themes were that you were trying to push. There's a few other points I'd like to to talk to you about then about how you manage a business of such size. And I think you've given some really good examples there of how to kind of drive engagement and to demonstrate a connection to staff across across scale. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd like to almost look at the, the, the flip side of that as well and how you remain accountable for the actions of so many staff because we've spoken on the, the podcast previously about the concept of accountability and the fact that really the buck does stop with the CEO yes. and about how difficult that is to manage when you have so many people working in so many different locations doing so many different jobs, how you're supposed to be able to basically say that, look, it wasn't me, I didn't do it, I may not have even been here at the time that, that something happened, but I do take responsibility for it. Yeah, well, it's it's such a timely and interesting question. And I think that this difference between responsibility and accountability is an important one 
to, to think about. Uh, what I've noticed is that accountability nowadays seems to have morphed into who gets shot when something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's become about blame and about scapegoating, which I think is personally, I mean, I'm, I guess I <laughs> obviously have a bit of a bias in this one, <laughs> but I, I don't think it's necessarily the most constructive way to think about it. I mean, I think that surely the the CEO is ultimately accountable for the culture of an organization, setting the tone at the top, how they manage the organization and, and the like. And there are times, as, as what happened in my circumstance, where the shareholders or the board or whomever the politicians decide that they they want a circuit breaker and they want an element of scapegoating, regardless of whether that person has contributed to the situation or not. I think, in my mind, accountability is something people should want. It should be coming from a place of, um, I, I often refer to it as the put me in coach uh, philosophy that, you know, I want accountability. I want to be given the responsibility to get on and get something done and be measured about about the results that, that I achieve. And I, and that's that's what you you should want. I think as it has morphed into this notion of who do we blame, I don't think it's necessarily that constructive for organizations um, because you learn through things that go wrong. You learn through mistakes. And, and I think that there's this, just this notion of, of, of a cleansing that everybody seems to want when something goes wrong. I, I'm just not sure it's, it's entirely helpful. But I do accept that it is it has become something of the um, the reality in terms of what, particularly in public um, markets in Australia, um, people seem to be looking for. It's interesting, Brian, because uh, when we had John Poynton on uh, a few podcasts ago, he referred to the, exactly the same thing. And his conclusion was it's becoming more and more difficult to attract people to serve on boards or as CEOs, particularly of public companies. Are you seeing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because it's gone, particularly in Australia, I think that because of the nature of the media and the political environment here, there is such personalization and focus on these things. I mean, the issue that, that we faced was a technical error in 2009, which happened three years before I even started at the company. Now, if I had a time machine, there's things I'd do differently, but you just suddenly get photographers outside your house and this incredible personalization of the issue. Whereas I would have argued that actually, as soon as I found out about the thing, I, I probably would have been one of the best people to get in and fix it. But you know that we, we've created an environment where there's just almost this bloodlust and um, that, that comes in. And um, I know certainly the conversations I've had with, with many people, and maybe they're just trying to appease me, but um, they say, well, you know, why would you do this? Why would you put yourself through this? Um, particularly when there's a large cadre of private companies out there um, who are not subjected to the same level of um, media intensity. So, in fact, that's a great question. And uh, we were talking to Tanun Pasha in in our last podcast about uh, why would anybody want to be a CEO? So I'll ask you why, particularly of such a behemoth where you've got 40,000 people, with eyes on you, plus society, plus the broader community, what tempted you to to take such a huge job? Oh, well, it was an incredible honor. Uh, I'd spent my whole career 
in banking and um and I was very excited about being part of the transition of the industry to a better place, a more customer focused world, a, a world that was much more technologically driven. Um, I felt that I had the experience and the skills to do that. And I'm, I was a history major at university and I, I'm, although my accent's American, I've spent 27 years in Australia and have a tremendous love for Australian history and the, the chance to lead one of the, well, the oldest company in the country, um, the first bank, through a period of dramatic change in the financial services industry was was incredibly exciting for me. And I, I knew going into it, I had worked in the UK at RBS after, after RBS blew up. I saw what the CEO of RBS was subjected to um, post the GFC. I understood the downsides of what came with the job and the risks that came with the job, but I, I felt on balance it was uh, it was an incredibly exciting opportunity and, and a tremendous honor, and I, I still feel that way. Well, good on you. I mean, I, th- I think it's kudos to you, first of all, for your comments just now, but also for the stance that you took, which I thought was very distinguished and graceful during that 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 media and chattering frenzy. Brian, thank you so much for speaking to Three Peaks Leadership today. I I do get the feeling there is plenty more to cover. So if you'll join us again next time, we'd love to continue the conversation. I'd be delighted. Wonderful. Thank you. That was Brian Hartzer, former CEO of Westpac and the author of The Leadership Star. Thanks very much for your company today. We've covered a lot of territory. There is plenty more next time. So make sure you've hit subscribe or follow on the podcast so that it lands in your playlist the moment it's released. And if you haven't already, make today the day you order your copy of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Couldn't be any easier. Just order it online from Booktopia, Amazon, Dimmicks, basically anywhere that sells books and it'll be delivered straight to your door. I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson.